Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello, Art of War family, and welcome back to another uh, edition of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, John Damaris, and today on the show, we're going to talk about Dark Angels. Hopefully, you found us on the Frontline Gaming Network, and if you haven't been there yet, it is the number one place to find competitively focused uh, podcasts about the game we all love. There's quite a few there, so you should definitely check it out. Again, that's the Frontline Gaming Network. Uh, But today, on this podcast, we're going to talk about Dark Angels, of all things. Which I know, I know, crazy talk, right? And we have our good friend Ennis Wilson from across the pond in Scotland to discuss that with us. Uh, joining us as always is Nick Nanavati, one of the best players in 40K in the entire world, and he's going to help us break it down. Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce Ennis and let's talk Dark Angels. Sure thing. So Ennis is one of the players I've known for years through my ETC adventures. He and I played for the first and only time in LGT last year uh, over in London. And that was in the final round. He gave me quite the beatdown, so the kid knows his stuff. But uh, today we're going to talk about Dark Angels and Ennis' list. So, Ennis, uh, how are you doing tonight? Why don't you tell us about uh, what you're playing these days? Hi, Nick. Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. So, at the moment, as a result of some WTC practice where we've been trying out some quote-unquote eight lists based on what factions we have available to us, I was handed the, I'm going to call it unkind duty, but I don't want to throw my captains too much in the dark. Uh, I kind of volunteered to play and try out some Dark Angels lists. Um, so obviously we saw they got their new Ritual of the Damned recently, their Psychic Awakening, which gave them access to all the standard stuff. So you got Doctrines, a bunch of new stratagems, new relics, and then also some great litanies, which are where I kind of drew my focus on. And the Dark Angels specific litany was where I immediately was where I found the most obvious power was going to be. And that litany is a 6-inch aura, uh, activates on a 3+, plus, as is standard with litanies, and it gives you the Ultramarine Super Doctrine, effectively. So any infantry units that don't advance within that 6 inches count as having stayed still for the purposes of firing weapons. And the combo that comes up with that, if you sort of know anything about Space Marines, is aggressors, who get to double tap if they remain stationary, so fire their weapons twice. And that's a lot of firepower that you can put into very cheap units. Uh, so a five-man five aggressor squad is 185 points. That score kicks out, on average, with you hit that litany, 95 bolter shots a turn. That is a lot of firepower. So it's interesting. You found one of the niche things with Dark Angels with their um, litany to move and shoot kind of stationary and combat out with the aggression. It's very clever, um, especially with the extra range gained from their doctrine. Um, so what is the full list like if you were to write it out? Yeah, so the full list is a... It's pure mono Dark Angels. It is two Supreme Commands and a Vanguard Detachment. Uh, six CP, I know, crazy. We'll talk about that later. Um, it is Samuel, two Ravenwing Calamasters, uh, Samuel in Sableclaw, a Ravenwing Apothecary, Ezekiel, Asmodai, Azrael, an Interrogator Chaplain, three times five Aggressors with Boltstorm Gauntlets, and ten Deathwing Knights with a Watcher in the Dark. All right, well, I'm just going to hit the elephant in the room. How do you get by with just 6 CP? Uh, like, what's, are you, do you just not care about your stratagems? Don't you have a lot of stratagems that are worth using? What, what is going on here? 
Well, there's a simple answer to that and a complex answer. The simple answer is I just try not to use stratagems. Um, and yeah, I mean, we all try not to use stratagems. You don't want to use your command points if you don't have to. Um, the more in-depth answer, I suppose, which is the entire reason we're here and not to make jokes, is that the stratagems that you have access to as Dark Angels are fairly limited, not in what they do power-wise, because there are some very powerful strategies there, but in how many of them you actually need in any given game. So some of the ones that are great are Auspex Scans, um, which allow you to shoot units that come in from Overwatch, fighting twice with any unit, fighting or firing on death with Talonmasters or combat characters, or the Deep Strike strategy for Deathwing Knights, which allows them to come down within six inches of all the ribbon with Apothecary and outside six of an enemy to get even closer for your charges. But in a lot of games, you're not going to need all of them. And you it's very much a thinking army where you have to know going in where your stratagems that you are locked into spending are and what stratagems that you just can't afford to use. Um, and that gives you a lot of agency in controlling how you play a game, but you have to play the game very carefully around what stratagems you do have access to. But not needing all of them does give you a lot of ability to sort of mind game people where you have access to all these stratagems and they all do very powerful things. And holding them in the bank rather than using them gives you the ability to sort of mind game people, I've found. So let's before we get into which strategies you use and don't use and how you do that, I think we need to understand what your army is doing. Like how does it play on the table? So you have this brick of infantry that's fairly tough. It crashes three wounds, toughness five. Uh, and they walk around in a four-up invol world from Asriel. Then you have a bunch of characters that uh stand behind that presumably and shoot a lot, saying the talent masters, all your special character brigade, all that stuff. Um and then your Deathwing Knights, I guess, probably deep strike so they can come off off the Ravenwing Apothecary. Is that pretty much how it plays? Yep, you're going to play very much a battle pile. You're going to move your army up, you're going to find an objective to consolidate around, and then try and control the board from there using your long, long-ish long range and more specifically long movement on the Talonmaster to control where your opponents can stand, and then the threat of combat from the Deathwing Knights to prevent them from coming too close to you or from castling too much because Deathwing Knights can drop in and start making multi-charges. Interesting. So with that style and your range brackets in your army, do you find that you often get outranged while you're trying to run across stable shoot people with boulders, essentially? Yeah, getting outranged is very much a real threat for a short-ranged army. Um, aggressors have an 18-inch range and a 5-inch movement, which gives you a 23-inch threat range. On the first turn, that becomes 26 with the plus 3-inch range from there special doctrine that they get in Devastator. And then aggressors can freely advance and shoot. They suffer no penalty to their hit rolls for doing that. So you do have, on turn one, a 27-inch threat range up to potentially a 32-inch, which then drops to 24 to, quick math, 29-inch threat range. So they're not super slow in any deployment other than Hammer Anvil. You're very much able to start on the line and shoot into your opponent's deployment zone a decent way. So anything like a tank or a squad of 20 or 30 models, you can get in range of them. You're not too worried about getting shot, shot to bits. And then hammer and anvil deployments, you've often got a lot more terrain to hide in because just the way boards are set up. So it's not too crippling. And then you've got the long range of the Talon Masters between 42-inch range on the on the heavy boaters on turn one, the additional range from the Relic that gives you bonus range on Talon Master guns. You have a lot of options for dealing with the critical threat. So you can sort of pick one thing that you really need to get rid of on turn one and deliver enough firepower to either kill or cripple it so range is an issue but it's one that you can play around with good terrain but it is a yeah. terrain dependent using terrain to limit what ranges from your opponent because obviously the further your opponent is from you the more crap it's going to be in the way you can use that to limit his line of sight 
The nice yeah. thing is though, you can you can park your stuff sort of out of line of sight in your bunkers and stuff, but still give them a no fly zone because you you walk out of the ruins or whatever and blow up anything that's in the middle of the board. So it still makes it hard for them to stand on objectives, right? It sort of changes the game a little bit for them. Yeah. The one issue that comes up with that for opponents is if you want to stand near them but not shoot them, you potentially get into a point where they can move out, shoot something behind that, and then charge that. Because aggressors have still got power fists. They're not bad in combat. Yeah, they're minus one to hit. They're not assault centurion level combat threats. But they get a lot of attacks. They get a lot of benefits from things like Asmodai's possible attack aura, and then reroll to hit auras from um, the special characters, whether that's the chaplain's full reroll to hit aura or actual reroll failed. And yeah, you may be trading out losing the four up and vol on some squads, but things like a squad of guardsmen, you're more than happy to charge that, maybe even wrap it with a squad of assaults, with a squad of aggressors. Right, which makes sense. So basically the way you're playing your army is you walk into the middle of the field and then you exist there. So if your opponent's trying to interact with the objectives, he's probably going to be in your medium range bracket. And if he's not trying to interact with the objectives to, to stay out of range of you, it's okay because you're just racking up points, scoring objectives all game, right? Yeah, more or less. That makes a lot of sense. So now that we kind of have an understanding of how your army plays, let's go back to that stratagem discussion. The The thing that comes to my mind is your Deathwing stuff. They obviously, you want to just go through the trick with uh, how they show up off the Raven Apothecary? Yep. So there is a stratagem that allows any Deathwing unit for 2CP to arrive within 6 I believe it's wholly within six. The language on that doesn't matter too much. Right. Yeah. Within six of the Ravenwing bike, which is a decent sized base, you can very easily get 10 10 Terminator bases inside that. And they become subject to a six inch limitation rather than a nine inch limitation for where they can be placed, which means you can get much closer to your enemy units. Uh, Combine that with the Canticle of Hate, which is the plus two charge litany. You can be having a four inch charge from Deep Strike on a squad of 10 Terminators. Right. So that's super powerful. It's worth pointing out that there is a one-point um, stratagem for Dark Angels that allows a Raven Guard model or unit to move twice. Uh, you can't advance, right? And use the you can advance and move twice, but you can't you, you can't advance and use the what is it combined yeah, arm you can't, or whatever it is. You can't use the deep strike stratagem on a unit on a Raven unit that advanced this turn. So you are limited to at most a twenty-eight inch movement. Oh no, you only get to be thirty-four inches closer to the enemy than you are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that twenty-inch movement it just allows that apothecary standing you know in the middle of your blob to basically threaten most of the board with your your knights which is yeah, pretty cool it's v- very difficult to get to a point where they can screen you at six inches away and not be at least within 12 so you're declarable on them because then you can slingshot off your charge onto something else so you can yeah. for example charge a screening unit kill them and then pile and consolidate into a more important unit like say a Lehman rust with the hammer asunder or something like that where you just need to get touching it to stop it from doing its damage output I think you just highlighted on a great point. This is very, it's all about creating a reliable charge out of Deep Strike. That's the point of this. But it's very different from, say, Blood Angels, who do it through having a 3d6 charge out of Deep Strike. Because you're nine inches away from the enemy, you can still only declare a charge on within a 12 inch radius. So it's really just what's in front of you and everything three inches behind that. With your ability to show up six inches away, um, it's a lot more potent because now you have to. You have what's right in front of you plus whatever six inches behind that to be able to clear a charge. So if your opponent's trying to screen you out of that, he's got to he's going to run out of board space basically. So he's going to have to push his screens further outward towards your guns, and your relatively short range guns are now going to be in range, and it creates this nice synergy between those two combos. So that's really I'm glad that. So for example, if your opponent's going to do that on turn two to stop you from being able to deep strike in on turn two, they then have to do it again on turn three. 
uh, because you get to kill all the stuff that moved up, and then you get to kill the stuff that moved up again, and then maybe you have to take a worse charge on turn three, but you got two turns of good killing out of it. And the Deathwing Knights are a very resilient unit. They all have Storm Shields. They have a good a good glut of defensive stratagems. I'm more than happy to drop them in a ruin and move them out on turn four. So, but this goes. This all goes back to the CP issue, uh, if, or maybe it's not an issue, but the question. So, it takes two CP to do this Raven Wing strat. Um, you have six CP to start. I know you mentioned you, you probably buy a relic during the game or something, so that's five, and then or before the game starts. And then you you have three CP, which is fight twice for your Terminators if you want it, or it's a couple rerolls. Say you need to reroll your six inch charge, or you need to reroll a chapel, anything like that. Is that really enough for you to do what you got to do here? So I think it is. It's the reason I have a 10-man squad. If I had more CP, you could probably get away with running a 5, a 6, a 7-man squad. But by taking away the CP, so by not running the Scouts or the Incursors, I take away units you can kill, and I just front-load the killing power in, because a 10-man unit fighting once is the same damage output as a 5-man unit fighting twice, just on balance. You're going to overkill more stuff. That's just the nature of the way that you're trying to play the game. But you can front load a lot of auras onto the squads. You've got Ezekiel's Righteous Repugnant Psychic Power, which gives you reroll hits and wounds. Um, you get Shock Assault now. There is the plus one attack from Asmodee, full rerolls to hit from Ezekiel or Asm- from uh, Asmodee, Ezekiel, or Azrael himself. You can just get rerolls onto all these attacks. Um, on the charge with Asmodee, they are getting 36 strength 8, minus 2, 3 damage attacks that aren't minus 1 to hit, and then the flail attacks, which have the the rule where if you say say they're two damage attacks, if they kill a one wound model, they would kill two one wound models instead because their damage continues to spell. I think it's um, also worth worth pointing out you can spend one CP for plus one to hit. Yeah, if you, you really can spend need a CP to go. for plus one to hit, or you can spend a CP for plus one attack if you're targeting a unit of ten or more models, which would give you forty five slightly better, slightly worse thunderhammer attacks. I which is a, which is a lot. That units like this need to fight twice to actually kill what they're trying to kill. Now sometimes they do, but Really, it's it's for the distance. You get to pile in and consolidate again, hit a unit. Maybe that was initially behind the screen. The first fight, kill the screen. Second fight, kill what's behind it. Is that something your list just doesn't need to accomplish? So, yeah, the, the movement that you get from a fight twice ability, especially if you've got something like the six-inch piling consolidation that you get from Canticle of Hate, is fantastic. And there's obviously no doubt about that. You get the ability to go even further. You get to go in for wraps and things like that. But the Deathwing Knights are... Very resilient for the points cost. Um, there are two wounds, two up, three up. You have access to stratagems like transhuman, making them toughness five responsively to being attacked. So that is basically transhuman, but for small arms fire. So say stalker bolt rifles, you can go to being wounded on fives, which is just better transhuman. Or in combat, you have a minus one to wound stratagem. So you can either go for just going for a wrap on the initial target because you're just going to sit there. You have far better defensive stats than most things that are going to be charging you and you get to hold people in place for a turn. Or if you can't do that, you just go for the big one-turn one turn punch, kill everything you can, and then you just stand them there and say, if you're killing these, you're not killing my battle pile, which is the other 1,600 points in my army. And if you're not killing that, that means I get they have the opportunity to go for late game plays with Talonmasters, which once you've run out of things to kill Talonmasters, they don't die quickly, especially with their 60-inch movement ability to fall back and still shoot. I'm normally pretty happy to just say, not vocal for the double fight because we've all played melee armies you hate using a double fight strategy it almost always feels terrible the only time where you're normally okay with it is against like something that stood back up and you want to kill it again at the end of the phase and they're kind of not in vogue for the meta at the moment so i feel 
generally okay with not having a fight twice. And I do have almost always five CP going into the game, which is just enough that if I really need it, I do have a fight twice. If I'm in a game where I feel like I absolutely can't win without a fight twice, the option does exist. I often find I'm forced to fight twice. Once in a while as part of like an elaborate plan, for sure. But often it's because things just went wrong and I need to make things better right now. So I throw my CP out like a Band-Aid. Um, with having so few CP left uh, to play with, do you find you miss that level of consistency where it's like, I don't have a, an insurance policy if my plan yeah. goes around? And that's why there are a lot of, I don't want to say safeguards built into the list, but a lot of redundancies built into the list. I have the Righteous Repugnant Psychic Power, which gives me the reroll to hit and wound. If I don't hit that, I have a Talamaster that I can stand next to them. If I don't have a Talamaster stand next to them, I can get reroll to hit from Psychic Powers. I can get reroll to hit from the Chaplains. I can get reroll to hit from Azrael if I have to chain one guy back for it. There are always options. Um, so you're building in redundancy in how you engage rather than redundant. So you're building in proactive redundancy rather than reactive redundancy, which is just a different way to build it. Uh, and inst- by doing that, I don't have to take the chaff units, uh, which so allows thing, me to play a denial version. Yeah, one thing I think is worth pointing out, and just tell me if I'm way off base here, but the way that your army works is if you get six turns of just shooting with Talon Masters and Sammy and wearing your opponent down, you're perfectly happy to play that game. And then you've got the threat of these big plays that sort of force your opponent to be honest, right? So like, for example, with the the Deathwing Knights, sure, it would be really great if you could, you know, get within six inches of their front lines and then they had something juicy behind it, fight twice, you know, break their back. But this isn't really a back-breaking list. It's not designed to go and crush your opponent in one turn. It's designed to wear them down methodically over six turns of the game, and that's its game plan. Now, you have the threat of that, so you force them to screen. You force them to to play in a way that feeds into your army being able to get kills, but ultimately, you're perfectly happy with just... Oh, my Talon Masters, you know, killed some things. My aggressors are hiding potentially, or maybe not. Maybe they, your opponent moves into range of them and then the aggressors come out and eat something. But it's just the threat of it that is forcing your opponent to like make hard decisions. Like, are they going to come out and stand on those objectives in the middle of the board and get blown away? And they're going to trade whatever they put on it for one CP or not one CP. I'm sorry, one victory point. Like, like this is the kind of uh, dichotomy that the list is creating for your opponents. And then there's no easy decisions. So I, I don't know. I, that's just my yeah. my observation. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with that, John. I don't have to go for that play with the Deathwing Knights. If I make you play super defensively for two turns while I take the center of the board, and then we play a four-turn game or a three-turn game, that's better for me. I have so much less time to lose stuff, and I just get more and more turns of chip damage from Talonmasters. I And then I don't even have to spend the CP. I can drop them in a central ruin and say, this is my objective. Or I can drop them off in a side ruin and say, okay, I'm now holding two and threatening two, and you've got one. So you have to trade units to me to get hold more if you're going second, and I get to trade for kill and kill more, which you might not be able to get, because there are so few units on my list that you can meaningfully interact with. Yeah, and you can drop them in in a place just to screen for Talon Masters, right? Hiding out a line of sight. Have fun dislodging those guys to get at my characters that are behind them. That's not happening, so... <laughs> exactly. 
So one thing I've noticed about your list is, is that it's very small and weak, obviously. It's 15 aggressors, 10 terminators, and a whole bunch of characters. There's nothing else to it. A lot of the things um, I find successful in ITC and WTC is basically people's ability to move around a table to get that bonus point, get those movement secondaries, max out your maelstrom score, that kind of thing. Do you find that that's something you're not able to keep up with while you're just sitting here denying? Or is the fact that you're denying counterbalance and the fact that they're running up as the maneuver secondary so there's there's sort of two questions to that so we can talk wtc first so in maelstrom missions especially now you can tailor your deck a lot more so i can say okay i'm only going to take most of the kill schemes of war cards and some of the holds and i'll take the holds that i can get easily or that i can get in the late game with talamaster movement because they are movement 16 and then in itc i can say sit on one objective because i can have i one objective is mine. Uh, there is almost no functional way to say that my army doesn't get one objective. And then I can control where other objectives go, either through the missions where you get to move objectives or the missions where they get to be player placed. So I can say, I'm going to hold one objective. I'm going to deny you kills by having four units you can shoot at that are either aggressors or they are the Deathwing Knights who are going to be in reserve. And then I'm going to trade getting a kill and getting kill more and holding one objective for you getting kill more, hold more, and the bonus point. Assuming that you don't kill me, which I can play around by doing things like having most of the aggressors in the front and then having maybe the fifth aggressor from each squad out of line of sight so that you can't easily kill all five aggressors from one of the turn. Uh, Dark Angel's Grim Resolve, you can only lose one more to morale, which means that if you kill three guys on a double six, I would lose one, and you need to kill five guys and then have me roll very badly on morale to kill the last guy. It's unlikely to happen. Um, and sometimes you just have to play with unlikelies in 40k. So you can deny kills with this list. And then if I'm trading those and you're not getting kills, you're not racking up your seek and destroy secondaries, I think they're called. And I am. And then I can take maneuver secondaries that are things like engineers on aggressors that aren't going to be firing anyway if you're playing defensively, or king of the hill, or recon and standing in the middle of the board. Um, I can go for double engineers points with aggressors on objectives that aren't in the midboard, that are in the midboard, sorry. Or I can go for double recon points in turns four, five, and six when I've whittled down your firepower and can afford to stand a character each core. About eight characters. If I stand them in the middle of the board for two turns, that's that's my four recon points. I'm more yeah. than happy to play that game. That makes a lot of sense. So I think you you said something that I think a lot of people are gonna be like, what are you talking about? You you engineer your aggressors. Now they're one of your four units, four units, obviously these are things to function. Um, how do you just engineer a unit that is one quarter of your offense, basically? Well, so again, there's two parts to that. One, they're at, it's at, engineering them is only a third of my offense because one unit can still act normally. That's absolutely fine. It can be the back unit of my army or it can be a unit that's going to sit out a line of sight and provide screens for my characters. Um, I am almost certain that no opponent is going to provide enough units in front of me that I need 15 aggressors, 3 talent masters, all my characters' firepower, and 10 Deathwing Knights to kill. You're not, no one's going to stand 15 Centurions in front of me in a turn and say, kill these, because I can. And I can take a turn off engineering for that. That's fine. I, there are 6 turns in the game of 40k. I don't, need all th- I don't need I need 4 of them to engineer, or 2 if it's not in my deployment zone. So I lose a third of my firepower in at most two turns if I want it, or two turns up to four turns. It's not actually all that much firepower over the course of a game. Yeah, especially because, like you said, your opponent is 
playing against you. You know, he's a sentient being also trying to dodge your ranges for this ridiculous firepower your aggressors can produce. And that means your aggressors aren't going to be shooting because your opponent didn't let you. You might as well get some value out of them anyway by just getting engineer points. Yeah, it's the same principle for engineering stuff like Iron Hands Assault Insurance. They're never going to die. Your opponent's never going to come near them. They might as well get you points. Yeah, I, which is a move I've done all the time when I was playing Iron Hands. Um, it catches people off as well. People get thrown off the game with that. Because if you sometimes if you sit there and you say, okay, these aggressors are my engineers, people will throw units at them to make you attack because if you attack in combat, you don't get your engineers' points. People will do that, which is just feeding you kills. It's playing into your game plan even more. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And is that part of the reason your army is so well-tuned for that denial stratagem? Is that why you're so reluctant to put in troops? for battalions and CP, or is that you legitimately, like, do you, I'm asking, like, obviously having more CP is great. Having, is a luxury. Is that not worth the troop tax from the points perspective? You can't find 165 for your scouts, or you can't find 285 for incursors, or is it because you don't want to include those types of units into your army? Let, let's take a hypothetical where I say, I swap out 185 points of aggressors, which is one squad of five, for three squads of five scouts. That is, I get 20 points back, I get 4 CP for that. But in firepower, I lose 95 shots a turn of bolter fire, I lose eighteen. I lose 15 toughness 5 wounds that are going to stand in my Azure bubble and provide more screens for my characters, and I replace them with scouts that die. I, I'm almost never placing backfield objectives that I need to be standing on to have troops for. I don't need forward pressure, because I'm okay for you coming to me, I'm okay if I'm coming to you. I don't mind playing the offensive army against a defensive list, the defensive army against the aggressive list, because it switches so easily between I'm just going to use my power fist to beat you in combat if you try to come for me, or I'm going to try and I'm going to try and outshoot you with guns because you don't have any guns to shoot me back. It can do both. It can switch between the modes very easily. Troops don't fit into that because the four the power that I get from four CP isn't as much firepower as I'll get over the course of the game from having five more aggressors. Yeah. You know, I've never heard somebody say that, but that's actually a really interesting point, right? Because everything in your list is points efficient and effective, I would say. Uh, and, you know, scouts just aren't. They just die and they give up kills and they don't kill anything. So, um, but they do screen, but you don't really need a screen because you're like, come at me, bro. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> like, still trying to strike onto him. He's got aspect scan. The general yeah. trick that I found with troops is that armies that have great troops tend to be really powerful. We've we've seen this. Iron Hands, Stalker Bolt, Rifle, and Successors. Um, incursors or um, Thought Power Fists and Impulsors and Space Wolves. Gene Stealer Acolytes. Gene Stealers themselves. Um, any army that's got a great troop or a really, really cheap troop that just is inoffensive, like Dark Eldar Warriors or Eldar Rangers that just do a job for their points, they give you the CP. And then in Space Marine Armies, you tend to see scouts in armies that hit a brick wall of they can't add more offense through units. So Blood Angels, you can't add a fourth squad of Sanguinary Guard, so you might as well have them able to fight twice. You need stuff to stand on the board for deep striking for Blood Angels. So they need scouts, they need intercessors, they need stuff to stand on the board. This army doesn't need that, because the only thing that's deep striking is the Terminators. It doesn't need all that many CP to function because... I've not hit a limit on what I've hit a limit of points on what units I can add. I've not hit a limit on. I could add a fifty, a sixteen through eighteenth aggressor. I could add another sort of death three knights. I don't have the points to do that. I don't have a points for a fourth talamaster. I don't need troops to get me over the line of damage output. I need damage output to get me over the line of damage output. 
That's a really great way of looking at it. I, I think a lot of people see CP as a as a necessary means to make your army function. And you're just saying, my units are that good that I don't need CP to make them function. They function on their own. One thing I find really interesting, is it just the guy that told us that he was playing triple battalion because he wanted CP to spend with his white scars? Yeah, I remember that guy. Here. He definitely had triple battalion for his white scars. Where did that guy go? I was deep striking all that stuff. I needed stuff on the board. <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's, I mean, the last time I was on it, last time I was on it was triple battalion aggressors. This time it's triple aggressors, no battalion. You and your aggressors. Full we'll circle. Just, yeah. <laughs> hey, I did spend a lot of that episode very wrongly defending aggressors. So I'm glad I'm back to actually talk about aggressors in a good way now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the next week I was like, so in this, have you tried Centurions? You're like, why would I do that? <laughs> My, uh, yeah, I really, I hadn't even looked at them. We spent so long memeing on Assault Centurions that I couldn't look at them seriously for like six weeks after that codex dropped. That's fair. That's fair. I remember when that when Space Marines codex dropped, I, I was looking through it like with a fresh set of eyes. Like, these are actually pretty good Assault Centurions. And I like, pitched that idea to some of my other friends and they were like, Nick, you're, you're crazy. What are you talking about? These are garbage. Uh, I won my first tournament with, ever with Assault Centurions as well. I should have been better than this. Yeah. Well, to get us back on track, um, were there any other units you'd be you considered? I'm thinking something like nine eliminators could be really good in your army. If it's that indirect fire, I can shoot you, you can't shoot me back kind of thing, like your Sandmaster Star, and they give you a different kind of tool. Um, yeah. Is that something you'd consider? So, at all? this list Genesis was pre Richard Siegler's FAQ, um, where we could have full doctrines for the entire game, and the army loved sitting in Devastator Doctrine. With um, the original build was no Deathwing Knights and no Ezekiel. And two more aggressors, two whirlwinds with vengeance launchers, and nine eliminators. And that list was more than happy to sit in Devastator Doctrine and plink away at you with indirect fire rounds from the whirlwinds, which get Grim Resolve now for the reroll ones uh, if they're stationary. And yeah, that list was happy to do that. The eliminators function independently great, they don't need to be in any bubbles. But now that we've moved to a post Doctrine world where we have to move Doctrines every turn, I just found that the indirect fire rounds aren't enough on their own in an army that doesn't have access to Master Artisans. Because Master Artisans is really what makes Eliminators tick, in my experience, either that or the Raven Guard Super Doctrine, which often is combined with that, which is where you get to reroll one hit and one wound. And that makes up for a little bit of the loss of AP because you're just hitting and wounding more reliably. Because Dark Angels don't get access to successes in the same way that Space Marines do, and I was having to hide the, the Eliminators a lot because they couldn't just sit in the open because then that interrupts with my denial strategy. They end up dying to things like stalker bolt rifles that just shoot them. Right. Because so they, they use eliminators to fire indirectly, it doesn't do enough damage. To use them to fire directly, uh, they die. They die. That's the purpose. So yeah, in a, in the world where they were better, the list used them. In a, in a world where they are not better for specifically this list, I just found that the two hundred and sixteen points I spend on them is better served being more useful units that just live. Right. Now, okay, well that, um, that leads me to another question, I guess. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. 
So obviously, and this this list was designed with the WTC in mind, so no access to Forge World. But if you were going to play it in um, ITC formats, would you consider something like a Whirlwind Scorpius to kind of fill that role? Because I think it doesn't really need Devastator Doctrine to be pretty effective. And then now that Blood or not Blood Angels, Dark Angels uh, vehicles get their their um, Grim Resolve, you get reroll one. So it's a pretty nice little package. What do you think about that? Yep. So. Dark Angels, Robin Scorpius is great. Obviously, we've said it gets the rerolled ones. You're already taking elite choices because things like Ravenwing Apothecaries for access to the Relic Stratagem or the uh, Minus One Vulnerable Save Relic or just Aggressors and Deathwing Knights are all fantastic units. The problem that I have with it or even allying in something like the Imperial Fist Thunderfire Nest is that you then end up having to protect it. This army is... I'm not going to go out and say it's mobile, but it wants to be moving every turn. That's why you're taking the litany that gives you the always kind of stationary because you want to be moving. Yeah, it's only five inches, but five inches over four turns is past the middle of the board. You're on all the objectives at that point if you want to be, or all the middle objectives at that point, which is normally enough to be getting things like Coldmore. If you then need to, say, leave a squad of aggressors at the back, they're now becoming vulnerable to getting shot at because they don't have their four vulnerable saves, so things like Basilisks pick them up a lot easier. And then you are having to stand on this on this unit that might not even be holding you an objective based on how ITC missions work now, where you've got a lot more agency with player-placed objectives. So you're just adding a, a very immobile unit to a unit a list that is not immobile, but wants to move. So if it was playing more like a traditional castle where you're just going to sit in your corner, that would be great because you could just sit your 15 aggressors in a, in a nice ring around Asriel and say, you can't come at my backfield. But the backfield isn't effective enough to warrant that protection, which is I why think, I think not taking it works best. Yeah, I think the Scorpius, not including Scorpius, is a decision that makes a lot of sense when you look at it in terms of other lists that have also had success like that. So if you look at Braviathan, which won LVO, obviously, they omitted Thunderfires, which at the time was insanity. Like Thunderfires had six turns of dev doctrine, like the best, most efficient thing in the Space Marine Codex. How could you not run them? But it's because of that same thing. The entire army just wanted to move into the middle like a brick. It didn't want to have to protect that Thunderfire from getting wrapped by deep striking units. It didn't want to have things that could get wrapped. It just wanted to be a ball of death. So similarly, a Scorpius, or my suggestion was going to be Imperial Fist Thunderfires, just don't have... They require you to play a different kind of strategy to, to make them work. And yeah, we're not saying that this list is the second coming of Proviathan. It's, it's not that good. It's not nearly as good but what it is is it's a very powerful list with a lot of options and it plays in a similar way so it has the same weaknesses in that if you add a backfield that you have to protect or that needs protection or that people can exploit why give them the opportunity to exploit it that makes sense so that that leads me to this question or at least i want to i want to discuss this a little bit further earlier you said something about the list being able to switch from being uh, defensive against aggressive like melee type armies or being aggressive or maybe not a not a but being aggressive like moving across the board against shooting type armies right so do you want to go a little more into that like how the list sort of has that duality like it it doesn't have one game plan it actually has a lot of game plans yeah sure so against the list that's going to be coming to me whether that's a heavy combat list or another short range shooting list i'm happy to sit there and say that my defenses between always getting Hail of Fire on Overwatch, which is the double fire for aggressors, uh, combined with Azrael Rewards, I'm going to hit 30, 40 bolter shots if you charge a squad of aggressors. Uh, if you try to charge multiple, obviously that's stacking. 
with the minus one AP from Tactical Doctrine, which I'm normally sitting in on turns two and three, that's a lot of firepower that's not easy to take for a lot of combat units. Anything, something like Sanguinary Guard, they can maybe take it, but something like a Smash Captain or anything like that is going to struggle to take that much firepower easily. So you're able to sit there and say, you don't have guns. I do. I hit reasonably hard in combat. I might not hit as hard as a dedicated combat squad like 15 Death Company, but no, nothing enjoys getting punched by Parafist attacks from aggressors who are getting what, five attacks base be- between Shock Assault, um, their three attacks base natively, and Asmodai's plus one attack aura. With full rerolls to hit, you, you charge that squad, it's 26 Parafist attacks. Um, that's not fun for almost any unit in the game. Um, so it's able to play that game where it just says, you can't stand off me because I have guns. You can't run at me because I have firepower to kill you on Overwatch. And I also hit you back just as hard as you hit me. So if you don't absolutely destroy my units, they're going to hit you back. It's more than happy to play that game. And then in games where it's going to get outshot, so say they've got a, a heavy gun line, maybe whether it's exorcists, whether it's uh, fire prisms or vibro cannons for Eldar, I can just play a game where I stand in ruins and I shoot you with characters. Because then I've got six times of firing at Italian Masters. I've got the offensive threat from Deathwing Knights. You don't meaningfully quickly interact with 15 aggressors that are protecting characters. And by the time you do, hopefully I've taken out the elements that are threatening to my characters. So I can play a much more defensive board control oriented game rather than a defensive sort of firing lane oriented list. So in the game against coming in, I'm going to avoid ruins. So I get my Overwatch. In a game where I'm against a shooting list, I'm going to hug to ruins. And that's kind of where the switch comes in, is how you're playing around terrain, where you're positioning your models, not so much in like where you're applying your damage output. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I think that ability to function with different game plans is really what a lot of top armies need to do. They either need to be the best army at what they do, which is similar to Provideathan, is the best army at sitting in the middle of it. Yeah, so I'm, re- I'm really sorry for anybody who is out there hoping that Dark Angels are going to be the best in the game, which, is, as Nick just said, if you want to be a purely shooting army, you would better be Manny Chima's LVO list. Dark Angels don't have that. They, don't, they aren't the best at what they do. What they do have is a very powerful toolbox and some opportunities to make some tricky plays around stratagems that are unique, that will make opponents have to play around them, and you can get a lot of mileage out of that. It's very much a... I'm not going to toot my own horn too much and say that it's a very difficult army to play, but it is an army that requires forethought. It requires you to control the board well and to not make too many mistakes, especially in positioning. Uh, you need to be able to judge your opponent's offensive output and how they're going to approach your list well. Um, and then you also have to be able to understand when you need to switch between being offensive and being defensive. Because if your opponent plans for one and you end up playing the other, you can often catch them out with that. Even the best players will sometimes not expect to just get charged by an army that should be playing a gun line. Or in their opinion, yeah. should be playing a gun line. Or you have this giant combat threat, which is the Terminators arriving off Deep Strike off the Raven Wing Apothecary. Anyone who's educated in competitive 40k will be able to tell you what that combo is. And they'll be defending against that. And if you don't, you know, you just sit there mind your own business shooting Talon Masters and Deep Strike your Terminators on turn three defensively, that's going to throw them in for a loop if they're not ready for that kind of counterplay. Yep. And you've slowed the game down, which is ideal when you're using a character-based list. Because yeah, you're so th- going to get more turns to use your characters. Basically, they wake up on turn three and realize they've been duped. They've just gotten shot by Talon Masters for free, given up some screens, and now they've got to come into you where you're yeah. standing in the middle of the board and like have already have already taken without given 
if that makes sense as far as like army um and so and and now they're like okay i've got less army and i've got to dislodge this impossible brick in the middle you've of the now board. got less army less turns less options and i might not have spent cp yet um all my tricks are offensive if you're not doing anything to me and i don't need to do anything to you why am i using why am i using any cp i might go into turn four with six cp or five six five cp left Speaking of which, um, I do want to cover your Warlord traits and Relic choices. Uh, since you do only have 6 CP, you have to be very stingy about how you spend those. What is like your go-to thing? Obviously, it's matchup by matchup, but how do you approach that? Yeah. So there's a couple of very easy defaults, and then a couple of very easy, these are the standout options. So the one that almost always gets taken is the Ravenwing Warlord trait, which allows you a 6-inch aura of Ravenwing units don't suffer the penalty for moving and shooting. So that gives you effectively plus one to hit on Samuel and the two Talon Masters, because they're almost always moving. Which, combined with Samuel's reroll aura, means you're getting an extra, roughly an extra third again hits from each guy. Because um, you go from hitting on fours, rerolling ones to twos, to threes with four rerolls, or twos with four rerolls for Samuel. That's almost always a given. And then the relic that's almost always a given is one that gives a Talon Master more offensive output. So the usual one for that is going to be plus one to hit and plus six range, which also helps with the range issue a little bit. It gets him up to actually a 36 inch range on his assault cannons on turn one, which means that you can play a lot more aggressively with him. He can also go off on his own because even if he moves, he is now hitting on threes because he's got plus one to hit. And you're not as unhappy with that as you could be. Or if he's in the bubble, he's hitting on twos, which is even better. Then you're looking at sort of game by game options. So the one that is, I, I suppose it's, the unsung poster child of the best things you can do with Dark Angels is the Warlord trait for Deathwing, which is watched. It's the entire reason there's an interrogator chapter on the list. He pays eight points for the privilege of having the Deathwing keyword. And all that does is, once per game, any psychic power that's been cast, as long as it wasn't cast with an ability that gives it can't be denied, like the Athenian Scrolls from Thousand Suns or the Wordbearer's Stratagem after failing a power to make it pass and unable to deny, you stop that power. It doesn't matter what it was cast on, doesn't matter where it was cast, that power doesn't doesn't cast and it was cast which means they can't cast it again i've actually considered in allying dark angels to other armies literally just to get that warlord treat into my list it is so strong and it's like chaos or eldar who rely on quicken or warp time to complete plays with shining spears or possessed and they're just like no you're gonna sit right there in front of my army and do nothing yeah it's another one of those it, if you think of it functionally like a once per game stratagem it's it's vect for a psychic power right that, that's what it is basically yeah um, and we've all seen what people do with Vect, where sometimes you just can't go for a play because if it gets Vected, it's disastrous. It's the same thing with this. You can't commit for a play where you have to warp time your unit because if I use it, you lose that unit, which might lose you the game. And if you don't do it, it's functionally the same as if I've already, as if I didn't, as if I used it without me having to use it. It just creates this slowdown effect on the game again. Like a lot of the, is, this doesn't exist. Like people used to change their list to be less psychic power strategy reliant because Vect was so prevalent. Now it's like chaos and other armies. They can get like plus four to cast and rerolls and all that stuff. They if they want more time to pass, it is gonna pass. That's how they think. So having something that throws a wrench in there is a unprecedentedly powerful tool. As yeah, far you as have you have a way to do something that no other army in the game can do. Think the Seer Council, which can auto cast warp charge seven powers. You're not denying that under conventional means. Uh, Ezekiel's in the list, sure. Um, he might stop like an 18-inch Antony Overwatch power because he's got a 24-inch to die. This stops Edict Imperator, which is the fire and fade for Granite Paladins. This stops Warp Time on Magnus going backwards. It stops Astrolame. It stops Quicken. 
or even something simple like you're playing the the ancient double plague perilous that's minus two to hit i don't want them to be minus two i'll just make them minus one all of a sudden they're very killable for all these aggressors that kind of thing i don't i don't yeah in matchups like that where it's just i don't want my asthma to go off i don't want you to have that super smite um yeah it doesn't I, I have to be a giant flashy show part of the strategy it's, it's just, just like, it's one cp functionally because you're using the off of hero of the chapter in a game where you need it which is the buy an additional warlord trait for dark angels or all space Marine chapters have it it is once per game basically one cp that you had to pre-spend stop something and there's a lot of unsung power in that whether it's the giant flashy plays or it's just stopping that one smite that's going to kill your character on one wound I also, actually think really the value of that is more the threat of it than anything because it completely changes a lot of like when it's good it's amazing because it changes how somebody wants to play the game like they can't do their normal go-tos they have to like try and beat you out with it <laughs> right so they can go back to their normal game plan so you know the so, like, ideal hey, game want- would be one where you never have to use it because they never use the power that it mattered against because they could yeah. it's a lot of how i view vex when i play eldar or gene sealer right, you like, hate using it, but, but this, I, i'm this never happy one cp it. yeah um it, yeah. it also opens up some interesting plays for you which i want to highlight really quick you are absolutely insanity overwatch like aggressors get to fire twice with full rerolls dead from asriel that no one can charge that just willy-nilly and you can now, put the plus one to wound lightning on them as well army. oh my god yeah um a lot of armies white scars gene sealer cult now orcs they have psychic powers to to block overwatch and now inquisitors for all the imperialists that's how they get around these things like tau you just say that psychic power is not working. I am actually going to overwatch. And that's something that's much harder to see because in the movement phase, you move up ready to charge, you play on Castle's power, and now it's screwed. You are committed. There's no going back. You're, you yeah, can charge. Which means overwatch. I either get you you're not on overwatch or I get it next turn if you don't charge me. Yeah, exactly. Super. Uh, Repentia, for example, are a unit that is incredibly threatening in combat, but they do die on overwatch even with their four up and vulnerable save if they've got all the buffs on them. Uh, nine Repentia aren't surviving charging aggressors. No. No, no, um, So I guess my last question for you, is before we wrap it up, is was there any other things you were considering for this list? Like, I know you made it for WTC, so you were maybe imposing a factual limitation upon yourself, but are do you think that Mono Doctrine is actually the best variation of this Dark Angel list, or do you think it's worth splashing in other Marines or just foregoing Doctrine altogether? I think there's a consideration for singles play that Mono Dark Angels probably isn't the best place you could be. Um, but if you were wanting to stick with Dark Angels just as your core, which I don't think there's a reason, there's reasons not to, but Dark Angels do a lot of things that are very interesting and very unique, and they create an interesting puzzle. Things that would be interesting to add to that, I think particularly, are swapping out the Deathwing Knights for more of a combat space Supreme Command. So something like either my own personal favorite, which would be something like the White Scars, Master of Snares, Smash Captain, Librarian, Chaplain combo, which can just give you some ability to deny Overwatch, some ability to get some movement shenanigans, some advance and charge, and then the incredible ability that is Master Snares. Or you can go with something that's more pure damage output with a little bit of utility with something like Ragnar and the Armor of Ross. Um, because yeah, I love if the you, Armor of Ross Ragnar combo. If you can fit, if you go down to something like 12, maybe 10 aggressors instead of the full 15, and in the case I was taking space rules, I probably would try and fit a battalion in, probably specifically a blood claws one with terminators with storm shields in each squad, just to make them more defensive so I can use them for my backfield. I then transition into playing more of a backfield game. But you can get the you can get ten aggressors and most of your characters within the bubble so that your armor of Russ 
can always heroically intervene into any unit that charges them, which makes them so incredibly difficult to kill in combat. Because if you try to charge them with something like Possessed or Repentia or Zephyrim or Centurions, you've now got to deal with the the Wolf Lord with the Armor of Rust himself, probably with a Thunderhammer, and then also the Aggressor Squad hitting you before you get a chance to ever swing. And most units but will also, be crippled. Also, potentially Ragnar, right? Yeah, I mean, potentially Ragnar. Ragnar if, you can, if you can manage to leave a space for his base to fit through, Ragnar's going into. Yeah, that 6 heroic intervention thing is, it works wonders when you combine it with the Armor of Rust for fight last. That's absolutely brutal. Yeah, there's also an argument for like a Blood Angels Supreme Command detachment that's doing the same thing because they have access to the 6-inch stratagem for heroic intervention. Um, now, when you say there's an argument for, obviously these are very great detachments, little small plug-and-play here things that have been used for months now. But do you think that's better, in your honest opinion, than having the so, Mono Doctrine for plus extra range, or do I you think it's you're not? Really like Deathwing Knights. I would probably, rather than adapting this list, I would rewrite it from the ground up with the idea of building it with multiple units. So, for example, I would probably not be taking Azrael. I probably wouldn't take um, Aggressors at all on that sort of build. I would go with maybe more Deathwing, maybe take the Feel No Pain banner, um, trying to get some use out of the Lion and the Wolf to make the Smash Captains even stronger. Um, you could definitely build that list to be very powerful. I don't think it builds badly off of the base formula that we've got here with the Aggressors and Deathwing Knights list, but I think you would probably end up making a lot of trade-offs. You would probably want to remove a lot of the like the chaplains, Ezekiel and stuff like that. I would maybe not even bother going with a chaplain in this list. Maybe just one, um, just because it gives you the ability to still do things, but without taking Asmodai, you lose out on the combat power. I think this list holistically synergizes with itself incredibly well, and diluting that doesn't work. But maybe it's not a better list. Just that diluting this list down. Isn't yeah. the way to Maybe make this a better way to run a mixed marine list than than just adding in different characters to this one? But this list functions kind of as it wants to, as it is. Yeah, but there it might not be the best build for Dark Angels and something else. But I think it's pretty close to a very powerful build for Dark Angels. That's really cool. Well, John, do you have any other questions for us for this episode? I don't. I think uh, I'm ready to move into the second half of our discussion, which I think is going to be really interesting because, again. For those of you unfamiliar with our format, obviously we just finished with our strategy discussion, which you can think of as a macro discussion of sort of what's in the list, why it's in the list, what's the overall strategies, what are sort of the default relics and psychic powers and that kind of thing. In the second discussion, we call that tactics, and we actually break it down matchup by matchup. So you get specific advice how to play the list in specific matchups. And I think for this discussion, because the list is very flexible and we sort of touched on it a little bit, right? How it can switch from being an aggressive list to a defensive list, just based on what your opponent is playing. The discussion on that is going to be very, very interesting. So if you're a patron, we'll see you over on episode two and we can discuss it. Or you can hear us discuss it right now. If you're not a patron, I'm going to urge you to consider joining our Patreon because it's going to be, well, we have great discussions like that every week and the tactical discussions are really deep and you learn a lot about high level play. Uh, And it's only like six bucks. And I think we have over 40 hours of content available for that. So even if you just sign up for a month, download them all and listen to them all, and then uh, unsubscribe. It's a pretty great value. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at aow40k.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. 
This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.